0: Amen. Thank you, Daniel and worship team. Good morning, And Good to see you here this morning for the eleven forty-five. Actually, it's afternoon now. Good afternoon. Glad you're here. We never know who's going to show up for this one. I'm glad you have. I'm excited about our redemption story sermon series. If you're visiting with us today, you're new here. First of all, my name is Jason. I have the honor of being pastor here at the church, serving with an amazing body of elders. And a church family of whom you're surrounded by at this moment, partially. Um, We are glad that you're here to be a part of what God's doing in our church and and, and hopefully your life today. Um, The sermon series this summer we're walking through every week. We're looking at this bigger picture of God's redemption story through human history and also how that plays out in real life in the lives of real people. And so you're going to be hearing a redemption story from a person in our church every week. And so that'll be true today. Um, What we're going to do today is we're going to look at the, the backdrop of human history, this beautiful redemption story God is painting with the big picture. Uh, we're going to hear a testimony from one of our members, and then we're going to come back and talk about how that plays out in each of our lives individually uh, as the people of God. And so um, that's where we're going this morning. If you got a Bible and want to follow along, we're going to start in Exodus 2. Uh, we'll be there in just a moment. Heads up if you want to turn there. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Bible, chapter 2. What I want to do first is I want to start just kind of laying a backdrop, if you will, to human history of the redemption story that God is writing. And and I would say this. So today's sermon is entitled, uh, The Journey Through Darkness. And in a lot of ways, I think that could be the subtitle of the Bible, The Journey Through Darkness. And, and, And even for our individual redemption stories, we'll talk about how that subtitle could work for our lives as well. And so what I want to do is just start at the beginning to see this amazing redemption story that God is writing through human history. Uh, We see it play out from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, this redemptive story. Beginning with uh, God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, all things are perfect. God comes to Adam and Eve and says, I'm writing a story here. And you're created with this purpose of bearing my image in the story. And then he tells Adam in chapter 2, Adam, you're going to be tempted to take up the pen and try to write a different story, a better story, but don't do that. As soon as you do that, something is going to enter into the story, what I'm calling is death, And so what happens in chapter 3, God's enemy comes in the form of a serpent to Adam and Eve and draws a line in the sand and tempts them to cross over that line and to attempt to write a better story for themselves, a story that's comprised of their own law, their own rules, their own sense of value and morality. And so Genesis chapter 3, we get this fracture, if you will, in the story. And since that moment forward, every human being in human history, two things are true. We've all been born with this lingering, what, what, what the Psalms will call um, the valley of the shadow of death. This lingering shadow of death in the backdrop, each one of us. The shadow of death is behind us. It's something that we experience with the death of people we love. It's something that we're all going to have to face at some point. And ultimately, this experience of death is this shadow, if you will, that entered the story in Genesis 3. And so, from Genesis three moving forward through human history, ultimately every human being has been longing for a rescue, someone to come and fix what is broken. The brokenness of death plays out in so many ways in our horizontal relationships with one another. There are tons of evidences of brokenness in our own lives and identity. There are tons of evidences of this brokenness that we each we each experience in the human history story. So what happens is after Genesis 3, the storyline is fractured, and death is now the shadow lingering in the air. From Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis 11, basically is is an introduction into the bigger story of the Bible. In Genesis 12, though, God makes a remarkable promise. And so you've got this guy named Abram. He's married to a lady named Sarah, and she's barren. They don't have any kids. But for all practical purposes, they seem pretty content in life they're doing well. They've got, uh, they've, got, uh, they've got some agriculture going. They've got a flock. They've got a herd of cattle that he's living with dad. Things seem to be going really well. No indication that Abram's discontent or that he comes to God and says, I need something better to go on in life. And it's in Genesis 12 verse 1, God speaks into Abram's life. He says, Abram, I want to write a better story with your life. What you've got right now that you're content with is not good enough. I wanna do something bigger. I wanna do something better with you. And so God says to Abram, this amazing promise in Genesis 12, one through three, says, Abram, here's the first thing I wanna do. I wanna take you and I I wanna take from you, uh, I wanna create this amazing family. Not just any family, but a family that will become so big, so vast, so large, so hard to count that your family will become a nation. That's a pretty big promise, right? But not only that, here's what I want to do, Abram. That's not the end of the story. What I want to do with human history is I want to take your family and I want to bless all other families on earth through you. And so the Bible is really the unfolding of this one promise to Abram. And we don't see it come to its complete fulfillment until we get to Genesis 21 where we see the death of death itself and God making all things new again. Now, just like us, when God makes us promises, we're tempted to take those into our own hands, right? We're, we're tempted to turn God's miraculous events into things that we can control, we can manipulate, we can instigate out of our own power. So what does Abraham do with Sarah. Well, my wife's barren, so, right? And so this isn't gonna work pragmatically. So you know what God must've meant? He must've meant for me to sleep with her concubine and get her pregnant. And that's how God wants to start a family for us, taking God's promises into his own hands. Well, if you follow the story through Genesis, that didn't go so well. Um, and God comes back to Abraham and says, no, I'm actually gonna do something you can't do in your own strength here. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna, get, let you allow, I'm gonna allow you to get Sarah pregnant. But God, that's impossible. That's right. That's actually the thing I'm gonna do here. And so Sarah, sure enough, conceives and bears a son, Isaac. Well, shortly after Isaac is born, he's a young lad. uh, God calls Abraham, by this time, Abraham to do something dramatic with Isaac, something that he didn't fully get. And when I read, I don't fully get until you read the bigger story. He says, Abram, take Isaac up onto the mountain and sacrifice him on the altar there. Like, that doesn't even make sense. I thought we were going to turn this thing into a big family, into a big nation and like bless people. And now my wife's finally given birth to a son. I love this kid and you want me to sacrifice him. So Abraham, trusting God, takes his son Isaac up onto the mountain to sacrifice him. And as you know the story in Genesis 22, God at the last minute steps in and rescues Isaac and provides a sacrifice, a ram to take his place. And Abraham brings Isaac back down from the mountain and back to their happy little home, and the story continues, foreshadowing what? A better rescue that was to come. A day where God would truly rescue his people by providing a lamb to die in their behalf. But in Abraham's little micro story, he didn't see that full picture. All he knew was, trust God in this moment. God made a promise. He's going to have to be the one to bring it to fulfillment. So Abraham passes on this promise to Isaac and says, Isaac, here's what God told me. I probably won't be around to see this promise fulfilled. So you take this promise and go forward. Abraham passes away. Isaac carries on the promise, has two boys, Jacob, Esau, twins. But Esau's the firstborn with the birthright. Jacob, a little conniving twerp, he steals the birthright from his older brother. And then he carries on the promise to his sons, has a bunch of boys, Actually has his favorite. Does he, is he, are any of you your parents' favorite? Don't raise your, oh, look at that. See, you shouldn't raise your hand. Because see, it makes the siblings mad when you do that. According to Genesis, that's what happened with Joseph. So his, his, his brother's a little jealous and envious, right, that they, he was dad's favorite. So they're like, hey, let's just take him out. And then they thought, well, you know what we could do? We could actually take him out, but we can make some money off of this deal. Let's sell him into slavery. So they sell Joseph into slavery. What's remarkable is how God's favor from the promise of Abraham lands on Joseph. And even in slavery in Egypt, he rises to a position of authority and influence. Now, I want you to hear the irony in this. So at the end of Genesis, something there's a turn of an event. In Genesis 50, his brothers actually come to him and apologize. And he says something remarkable about the story being written. In Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, hey, you're forgiven. Here's why. Because what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The story you intended to write for evil, God is saying, I'm gonna superintend that. I'm gonna write a better story because here's what had happened. For Joseph's brothers, they found themselves in a season of famine and starvation and they needed help. And where did they turn to? They turned to Egypt for help, for supplies, for food. And they didn't know that their little brother that they had sold into slavery had risen up into a place of power and he was able to extend them grace. And so we see God's story unfold in the most miraculous way the end of Genesis. So this sets the stage for what we're going to read in Exodus. So here's what happens. Joseph had this favorable position with Pharaoh, such that his brothers were treated well, his family was treated well, and, and this beginning, this kind of a budding, if you think about a rosebush budding, this little budding nation of Israel had become a pretty large family. They flourished in Egypt. They were blessed. They were given plenty they bore the favor of Joseph, their relative, and as long as they were related to Joseph, man, they got they were blessed. But then Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh dies. And a new Pharaoh takes his place who didn't know Joseph. And now all of a sudden there's a dramatic shift in the story that makes it seem as if God had forgotten his promise. Because see, this new Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, revoked all the favor of Joseph and and his relatives and turned on them and enslaved them into bitter, harsh slavery. And so as you can imagine, this this was shocking, right? To these people who said, we have have the promise of Abraham. We've got the favor of God. He's going to do this amazing thing through us. He's going to turn us into a nation. He's going to bless all the other people. And now here we are. Surely God got something wrong here. Where do we we take a wrong turn? Like, how do we get here? And a generation goes from freedom into slavery like that. And just like with all of our lives, they began to wonder and pray, when will this moment pass? When will this darkness be over? And it lasted for a generation, and then another generation, and then another generation, and then 400 years had passed of bitter darkness and slavery. I mean, just a thread of hope remained for those who held on to the promise of Abraham, passed that on to their children. They passed it on to their children, but it was few and far between. Those who truly trusted that God had not forgotten for the vast majority of them, right? Like most of us in the midst of suffering and despair had turned and said, God's forgotten us. This is just our lot in life. Just gonna have to make the best of it. We'll take it into our own hands and we'll write the best story we can with what we've got. Yet in the backdrop, there's a bigger story going on. God had not forgotten his promises. So something happens in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to pick up the story. In the same way that the story turned by Pharaoh dying and a new Pharaoh stepping into place. In Genesis 2, we're going to pick it up. Several generations later, the current Pharaoh dies again, and all of a sudden it ignites hope again. This is in Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out. For help. Now, presumably, this is not the first time they groaned or cried out for help, but something ignited hope again that caused them to begin to groan and cry out for help. Now, I'd like to say that it was—it's clear that they, they knew where to turn. Let's let's cry for help to God, but it isn't clear in this passage. Matter of fact, it almost looks like their hope is in a new king. Hey, the Pharaoh is dead. Surely the next one will be a generous, gracious Pharaoh, like the Pharaoh that Joseph experienced, and he'll look on us with favor once again, placing their trust where? In what man could do for them. And so they're on the the brink of a new Pharaoh stepping in. They begin to groan and cry out. This is the end of verse 23. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. No real indication that they were actually praying to God, but God is here and he's listening. A matter of fact, look at the next verse. And God heard their groaning. God heard their groaning. Such a powerful statement. Have you ever been in that place in life in the midst of struggle where you wondered if God could even hear you? This is a beautiful truth right here. No indication that they're actually reaching out to God, but God still is hearing. Look at what else is going on. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In the midst of brokenness and a sense of hopelessness in the hearts of the people, God in the backdrop remembered his promise. He hadn't forgotten just because circumstances had changed for the nation of Israel, God had not changed, nor had his promises changed. And not only that, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And what a powerful word this is, knew. Okay, so the word in Hebrew language doesn't mean God had knowledge of. What it means is that God understood. It's the deepest sense of empathy that you can have. Matter of fact, it's what we see exemplified in the life of Christ when he comes to earth, right? So there's never a time in my life where I can say, God, you don't understand what this is like. You don't know what it's like to be you know, lied to and rejected and have people that you trust turn their back on you. And Jesus can say what? I, actually, I, I do, I do. I, I experience that. But God, you don't you understand you know, what it feels like to cry so long that you're out of tears and you've got nothing left. And Jesus says, I- actually, actually, I do. I-, I know what that's like completely. I understand it. God, you don't know what it's like to feel the pain and the agony of suffering. And Jesus can say, oh, yes, yes, I do. I know you're suffering. Not from a distance, not, not from an observation perspective. I know it because I've lived it. I've tasted your tears. I know what they taste like. I felt the agony of your pain. I've felt that myself. And so God says, I know. Now, here's what's going to happen in the story. Um, according to God's will and his timing and his plan, For these folks in this situation, it was 430 years. But can we just be honest, when suffering hits, it's almost like the the clock stops ticking. Whether it's 43 minutes in a doctor's office waiting on a result on a biopsy, or it's 430 years of slavery, suffering is suffering. Whether it's one minute or one hour, one day, one year, however long it is. Okay, and so they're in the midst of this suffering, and now something has ignited hope, and they're beginning to groan and cry out again, and so, in the midst of this, according to God's plan, His timing, He begins to initiate a rescue plan through this guy named Moses. Now, we tend to look back on history at Moses as this great key leader, spiritual uh, stud, the kind of guy that nations will follow. But like, there was none of that in him inherently. Matter of fact, he was kind of a coward. He's when God comes to him through the burning bush and says, "Moses, I'm ready to rescue my people from this slavery, and I want to use you." He's a coward. He's like, well, you're gonna have to give me somebody to go with me. I, I, you want me to go talk to Pharaoh? I'm not going by myself. So God provides that help through Aaron to go to Moses. But Moses isn't this dynamic, you know, Russell Crowe gladiator leader going in to talk to Pharaoh. He's timid. He's a coward. Once again, what? Displaying God's rescue plan, initiated according to his purpose and carried out, right, by his own strength and his own Power. And so they, Moses and Aaron let the people know, hey, I think God's doing something here. You know, don't want to get your hopes up, but it seems like God's doing something here. Matter of fact, you know, Aaron says, Hey, Moses, you tell him what he did. Moses' is like, well, here's the thing: there was this burning bush. God spoke, said, Take off your shoes, holy ground. And in the midst of all that, you're probably gonna think I'm crazy here. He said he was gonna rescue us. So the people, right? Those few who were who dared to trust again were beginning to hope again and say, okay, maybe. Maybe God hasn't forgot the promise and they begin to place their trust and their hope not in God, but in Moses and Aaron. And if you know the story, right? The first time they approach Pharaoh, it doesn't go so well, just like you might expect. Hey, uh, Pharaoh, can we talk to you? Yeah, so here's the deal. We've been talking with our God and um, he he wanted us to come ask you if you might be willing to just let his people go. Right, I mean, and so Pharaoh's like, um, tell you what, tell you what, I got a better idea. How about no? Because uh, not only would it crush our economy, it make me look like a fool, so no. And I'll tell you what I will do, though, for you. I'll turn up the heat a little bit. What you used to think of slavery, you'll now begin to think of as a vacation. And I'm going to show you what real slavery is like. Remember all that hard labor you used to do? We'll see how your, your people like it when I take their tools away and I take away some of their supplies and I make it more difficult on them, but I expect more out of them. How's that? Now, you talk about sucking between a rock and a hard place, right? The people were just beginning to hope again, and Moses and Aaron are there, and they're, they're hoping to make this plea bargain. And, and, and you, by the way, I'm done. You can go now. And they've got to walk back out to the people of Israel and let them know, hey, um, it didn't go so well. Well, what were you able to negotiate for us? Like maybe some time off or, you know, um, no, uh, Pharaoh said he was going to make it harder on us now. Talk about hopelessness becoming, right, even more hopeless. We're going to pick it up. Look at chapter 5 with me. This is where they go back out and talk to the angry mob after having talked with Pharaoh. We'll pick this up in verse 20 and, and read down through the end of chapter five. So they, the they in this, this particular passage is the angry mob. That's, that's just about to hear this bad news, okay? So they, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You've taken despair, you've taken darkness and you've made it darker and more desperate than we could have ever imagined. Good job, Moses and Aaron. Now what's interesting about that is that that's not too different from how we respond to struggle, despair, and suffering by turning on one another, right? It was the first thing that Adam and Eve did. They turned on one another. Adam's like, God, I didn't, I mean, that woman over there you gave, she's the one. That, he's selling her out. And we're no different, are we? As soon as something painful hits our life, we're looking for a, for a hook to hang blame on. Whose fault is it? It's your fault. You see this all the time in struggles and and marriages. I mean, going through desperate, deep, painful loss when you think that a couple would turn towards one another, right, and fight together to get through a hard situation. What oftentimes happens is the opposite. They turn on one another. This is your fault. This is your fault. If you wouldn't have given yourself to that job and worked all those hours, this wouldn't have happened. Well, if you weren't so selfish and acting like your mother, this wouldn't. And it's just, right? We turn on one another inerrantly. This is what's happening here. But not only that, I want you to see what Moses and Aaron do, because I think we can find some resemblance in this as well. Verse 22 tells us what Moses does. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. He turned against God. Have you ever been there? Where all of a sudden everything is God's fault? God, this is your fault, and I'm angry. Why are you doing this to me? Now, that question itself that we hear Abraham say here, I mean, it, it invokes such a, a reality. Look at what he says. Now you, so he says to God, why did you ever send me. Who is Moses most concerned about right now in the story? Himself, right? He's still worried about the story he's writing. He hasn't stopped to consider, maybe God's doing something bigger here than I can do in my own strength. And then look at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1 God steps in and says, here's the thing, Moses. I'm not performing a miracle you can do in your own strength. I'm not performing a miracle that Pharaoh himself can do in his own kindness. I'm actually going to do something here that can't be done with human strength. Look at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now. That's such a powerful word. That now implies a lot. Now that your suffering has been for over 400 years, now that you've tried to lead the people in your own strength, now that you see that when the rescue happens, Pharaoh won't get the credit or glory, now that you're at a place where you've got no other options left. That's a big now. Now, now (laughs) you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land and God's saying just like he said to Abraham when he tried to take things in his own hands I'm going to do something here I'm going to do something so powerful and miraculous that there'll be no room for glory for anybody else you will know you will behold you'll have no doubt at all I am the one who stepped in and changed things now get ready for me to work I want to look at what God says To Moses and to the people, and then we're going to listen to a story from one of our own church members who um, is a believer who walked through a really hard season of darkness. Let's look at verse 2. So God begins to speak to Moses, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. This is a beautiful way for God to say, Moses, like that's actually all I need to say. I'm gonna say more, but that's enough because that means I'm God, I'm sovereign, and I've got this. I'm writing a better story than you can write. I'm the Lord. I was the one who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That wasn't you back then. That wasn't Pharaoh. That was me. As God Almighty. But let's look at the rest of verse 3. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What a remarkable statement. Here's what he's saying. I'm the Lord. I've got this. It was me who made those promises to Abraham. And then I had to work with him for a while to get him going the right direction. To Isaac, Isaac. And to Jacob. But here's the thing, Moses. They didn't know me like you know me. Something about suffering opens up this opportunity to know the heart of the Father in a way that you wouldn't know otherwise. So he said, rest assured, I was the one making that promise, but I didn't reveal myself to them the way I've revealed myself to you. Verse four, I also established my covenant with them To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I haven't forgotten. Circumstances have changed, but I have not changed. My promise does not hinge on your day and how well things are going for you. Verse six Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Now think about that. What? Put yourself in Moses' shoes for just a minute. Right now, he doesn't have a lot of relational equity with the people of Israel. He's already gone to them and said, hey, me and Aaron, we're going to go talk to Pharaoh, see if we can negotiate something here. Good luck with that. And things, right, didn't go well. So not a lot of trust left for, and God's saying to, to Moses, what? Don't go out there and try to convince the people to trust you again. You go out there and you tell them to trust me. I am the Lord, I am sovereign. I am the one writing the story of the nation of Israel. I initiated it in Genesis 12, not Abraham. This is my story, not yours. And so he tells Moses to go tell to the, to, to the people, say to the people, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and will, I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, did you see the significant shift? So when, when, when Moses has got his fist in the air to God, who's the main character of that story? Himself. You did this to me, made me look like a fool in front of them. Did you notice the shift now as God begins to speak with how many I wills there are? Who is the story about? It's about God. Moses, I will do these things. And in the end, the people will know that it was me that delivered them. Not you and Aaron, not Pharaoh, and no other man on earth. Now, I love this about God because, you see, God doesn't want some man to be a mediator on his behalf. He wants to rescue us personally and intimately himself. God doesn't want me as a pastor to stand between you and him and try to negotiate and mediate. As soon as I try to do that, God says to me, get out of the way. I'm the one writing a story here. Get out of the way. And ultimately, that's what he's just spoken through Moses to the people. You go tell them, Moses, that this story is ultimately about me, not you. And tell them to get ready, because I will deliver on my promise. I'm going to take a minute to listen to the story of one of our members. And if you guys have got the video queued up, let's do that, and then we'll come back and talk about it.
1: We're all living His story. And um, who are we to keep His story from other people? Um, And everybody struggles with whatever it is, different things, or or, trials and tribulations, and and, and God is the reason why I'm standing here right now, the reason why um, I'm living, and and I want people to know that that it's Him, and I want to give Him the glory. My name is Ryan Petchel, and I was born in Abilene, Texas, 1979. Um, I'm, I guess what you call a, a military brat. My family was in the military, and, and was born on, uh, I think it was Dyson Air Force Base. Uh, didn't really live there that long. Kind of moved around a couple of places, but eventually, um, you know, moved to uh, Springtown, Texas, is uh, where I was, where I, I guess where I'm from. Right. One of my really good friends, I grew up with. His, him, and his family went to church all the time, and he started inviting me um, to church. So around fourth or fifth grade is when I actually became a Christian. That's when I, you know, came to, to know, you know, God. So um, life for me, as, as the world would would tell you, it, it came really easily. Um, I was always successful. Um, I, you know, as soon as I graduated high school, went straight into college, Stephen F. Austin. Um, you know, joined a fraternity out there, had fun. Um, you know, just did whatever Ryan wanted to do. Um, after college, I graduated college pretty easily. Um, you know, got married, uh, had an awesome you know outside sales job, paying you know a lot of money, got a house. Um, you know, had a, had a daughter, and, and everything just it, everything seemed like everything was in place. I was really really successful. Came home from work one day, and and um, at that time, my daughter's you know uh, mom, you know wanted wanted a divorce and she told me that you know she didn't think we needed to be together anymore um, and you know this was something that I was gonna have to have to deal with Um, it was it was a five-year span where not only that that she came to me and wanted a divorce my 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 mom and dad they started talking about getting a divorce Um, my sister I have two sisters and my older sister who was 21 at the time she she committed suicide Um, And then my parents, when they were going through their divorce, my dad um, tried to commit suicide as well, too, and was put in a mental hospital, and um, there was, you know, a number of different um, episodes where I had to, you know, take care of him and, and, you know, just from, you know, jumping in a pond and, and, you know, drinking a a bunch of alcohol and just just not wanting to be around anymore, I had to take care of him. Um, I lost my job. We lost our house. Uh, it was all, all gone, all taken away. So I didn't know what to do, and, and um, I just I remember just finding the nearest church that was at my house and, and, and just going um, one Sunday morning and just I mean just you know hitting in the, the ground, hitting my knees. I mean I just 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 bawling, just crying, and, 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 and knowing that you know I. I need to. I needed to, to lean on him. I need to lean on, lean on God. And from there, I just started, you know, just trying to to, to learn about him and, and just just read reading his word, reading the Bible, and, and just you know go to church as much as I could. And I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get enough of him. I, I was just. I needed to know everything and anything about him. Listen to you know songs and about him. I mean, whatever it was. I um. I just. I mean, I I started you know, just opening myself up to, to, to listen to him and, 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 doing, you know, and praying, um, as, as much as possible and, and just doing things that, that I knew he, you know, uh, putting myself around where I knew he would be and I knew he could speak to me, putting me, you know, just be intentional about my relationships around, you know, hanging around people that I knew that, that knew God and that, you know, that, that wanted, um, you know that, that loved God and wanted to be around Him. Um, you know, did some Bible studies with with some churches and stuff, and and eventually, um, you know, obviously, I, you know, God brought um, Melissa and, and Macy into my life, and and one of the biggest turning points with with my relationship with God, and and you know, where things just, you know, got all, just even better. Um, you know, Melissa was going to a church, uh, Solid Rock, and. Um, you know, she introduced me to, to go there and, you know, eventually I just started going to Solid Rock and just the men and, and, and everybody that was there and the pastor and, and um, just just started pouring into my lives and, and got involved with, you know, community groups. So, yeah, I mean, in, in my first marriage, um, I definitely was living, you know, living for Ryan. I, I wasn't living for God and, and I was doing whatever I wanted to, to do, uh, much less take my, my family to church. I mean, I, I literally could probably count on one hand at the amount of times that we went to church, and you know, it was probably because of, you know, Easter or, or you know, Christmas time or something like that. And to my marriage now where, uh, you know, Melissa's a, a complete blessing, Macy's a complete blessing, um, Claire is, uh, Nicole is, my, my family, just it's truly, they're there and um, I'm a part of them because of, of God and our, our, our marriage and our family is, is God- centered and is completely focused on God and sure I, I we do mess up and, and, we're, and we're obviously we're, we're not perfect as they say but um, come Sunday my family's going to be at church and, and yeah so he, he's truly here here in the last you know few weeks last you know months he's really put on my heart to just find joy in him um, regardless of the situations or the outcomes of things around me you know Ryan contends you know tends to want to be able to control things and have things go a certain way uh, you know almost to a, a you know a, a, I don't I have a military background in my family not me personally but just things that just need to go you know by the book here it is bam 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 and um, if they don't then I get really frustrated or even angry and, and he's he's teaching me that it, it's, it's not about that it's, uh, you know it's about finding my joy in him and, and being able to, to be that white to um, you know, show His love to my, to my family and to my wife and to my kids and to my coworkers and, and everyone around me that, you know, you can go through situations, you can go through life and, and um, just have this, this this joy about you that, that only comes from Him. He was, you know, He was really the the reason why I'm even sitting here right now and talking about Him. I mean, he's, he's what got me through everything. My name is Ryan Petchel and this is my redemption story.
0: Amen, amen, yeah. those of you who know Ryan know that's that's a real story and it's still being played out day by day uh, even now and uh, the thing I love about Ryan's story is how he got to the place in his life where he realized that it's not ultimately his story and it's not about him Um, even as a Christian the first part of his story he still tried to make it about him by controlling and performing and, and and trying to to direct the course of his life and through the struggle It was through this season of darkness that God brought him through that he began to realize God's writing a better story here than I can write myself. And my job is to take my hands off and trust God and where he's leading me. You know, Ryan became a Christian when he was in the fourth or fifth grade. And uh, in one of the first public teachings of Jesus, he says towards the end of the sermon, you know, the man who listens to my word and then does them is like a wise man who builds his life literally like a house upon solid rock that when the storms of life come, and they will come, right, and blow against the house, it will withstand the test of time. But the foolish man, he's like the man who hears these words of mine and doesn't trust and doesn't do them. He's like the man who builds his life upon shifting sand. When the storms come, the inevitable happens, and his life comes crumbling and crashing down. And we see that even in Ryan's stories. He became a Christian in the fourth or fifth grade. He had no idea that God was laying a foundation that would carry him through the storms of life, the struggles and the journey through darkness. Well, here's where I want to end today. I want to end by encouraging you that if you have not come to the place in your life where you've truly trusted God as the author and said, you know what? This is more about you than it is me. You're a better author than than I am. God, take control of my life and write a better story. If you have not come to that place in your life, today is the day Today is the day that God wants to enter into your story. Better yet, he wants you to enter into his. And he wants to redeem all that the enemy has intended for harm against you. Every bad decision, every sinful action, every sinful thought, every scar, every stain, everything about your past that you're embarrassed about, God wants to redeem every moment of your life and write a better story. And that is available to you today by faith, by simply believing. Believing that Jesus is who he says that he is and that he has done what he says he has done on your behalf. That the cross is ultimately about Jesus saying to us, let me take your place. Just like with Isaac and, and, uh, and Abraham up on the mountain, Jesus is saying, let me die on the altar for you. That you might have forgiveness of sins and the love of God abundantly and eternal life. Let me take your punishment. Let me die on your behalf. And so, ultimately, by trusting in that work on your behalf, you have everything. You have everything that God's children have. That's how you become one of His children. Now, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that things go easy from here on out. Okay, just know that it means though that you will be established upon a firm foundation. That when the storms of life come, whatever they are—pink slip from your boss, phone call from a doctor whatever it is, that you, your life will withstand the test of the storms and the journey through the darkness. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that God all of a sudden air vacs you out of this world. He actually leaves you behind enemy lines because his desire is to re- rescue more people through you and your testimony. And so just know that becoming a Christian means this, not having an easy life, but now you have the power of God in you, guiding you, bringing you the joy that Ryan was talking about, regardless of what happens in the circumstances around you. And that's yours for free today by believing. I want to pray for us right now, if I can, and invite um, our worship team to come back up and let's prepare to respond. Father, I want to first of all, thank you for being truly the Lord God Almighty, the author of human history, And God, while we tend to make our life about us and we tend to look at this moment, we're so thankful that you don't guide our lives based on this moment, but you see the bigger picture. And each person here today, God, we've all experienced the turmoil that comes from the suffering in this world. Some of us, it's been years, some of it's been days, others of us, brief moments, but we've all experienced the suffering associated with living in a dark and fallen world, and we're so thankful, God, that you choose to rescue us from this darkness. Father, I pray for any person here that doesn't know you that today they would hear your voice and believe, that they would hear your voice and trust that you can actually write a better story than we can write for ourselves. If uh, if that's you today and and you're wondering how you become a Christian or what what you need to pray to be saved, let me just guide you through a prayer and and you don't have to mimic these words this prayer needs to come from your own heart but it goes something like this God I believe God I believe in Jesus and I believe in what he's done for me and today I accept the grace and forgiveness that he freely is extending to me exchange what I'm doing is I want to I want to give you the authorship of my life and ask that you truly would guide my life in such a way that you would write a better story take whatever days whatever weeks whatever years I have left here on earth oh God and write a better story write one that's about you if you pray that prayer or one like it today that's what it takes to become a Christian we would love to hear that so In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and we'll have prayer partners in the back, and we would love to hear about what God is doing in your life today to pray with you and encourage you, so um, let's prepare to sing now as we stand.